Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. In 2017, the military gathered a small group of scientists to try and bring the Quantum Leap time travel program back online. Five years later, believing it was the only way to save his fiancée's life, Dr. Ben Song risked everything when he entered the accelerator to travel back in time. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own, and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. Ben believed he would only need to complete 18 leaps before he could return to the place and people he calls home. But something went wrong. And for reasons unknown, Ben did not leap home. Quick, they've abducted three of my cows so far. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 149, Closure Encounters. Project Sign. It's UFOs. Hey. Huh. How's it going? I'm an agent for Project Sign, so everything's a little... Strange. Yeah, strange. Okay, well, as you know, you are Agent Robert Cook from Project Sign. Looks like you're one of their best agents. Meaning I've found the most aliens? Meaning you've closed the most cases. At least some things don't change. Ziggy still doesn't know why you're here. Uh, Well, I found this... Proceed to Starlight, New Mexico. Anonymous caller reported a UFO ran two girls off the road. Both girls now in hospital, one in a coma. Okay, found this. Carrie Baker, 17 years old, the driver in a single vehicle car accident. Her friend Melanie Hunt was in the passenger seat, and it looks like Melanie fell into a coma and then eventually died. And Carrie went to prison for manslaughter. After we hit the tree, the, the ship whatever it was was hovering so we got out to run but i was slow on account of my arm so i told melanie to go on and i made it about 50 yards and then i fell into that ravine where i hid till morning i don't know what happened to melanie or why she's in a coma it doesn't make any sense i have also seen things that are hard to explain and harder to believe who the hell are you sheriff hello i'm agent robert cook with project sign The alien chasers. Have you been out to the accident site yet? I have. Do you see anything like Carrie described? I did not. Why isn't Carrie in lockup? That's Russell Hunt. He's the girl that's in the coma's father. He owns half the town. She hasn't even been released from the hospital yet. No need to stick her in a cell. Oh, a cell is where she belongs. I want her in lockup before the end of the day. Lovely fellow. Yeah. Say what you want, but the law's on his side. I hope you find something, Agent Cook. Because otherwise, I'm about to lose the last family I got. So all I have to do is prove aliens are real. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. And I'm Matt Dale. And today, ooh, aliens are among us. We're talking about season two, episode three of Quantum Leap, Closure Encounters. Dun, 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 dun. The (laughs) X-Files crossover. I don't know if that just shows my my lack of 
decent pop culture. I feel like X Files like lifted from so many other shows, and then and I said this to Chris Grismer as well. Like, Did you lift some of this the style here from the X Files? And then immediately thought, I'm sure there's earlier stuff than that, and I'm just a complete cretin uh, from only going back to the '90s. But th- this is a very X Filesy episode. It is, it is, and I'm I'm surprised that you would think that X Files is not like a good go-to. I feel like X Files either created the genre or at least cemented the genre in the popular consciousness. I mean, UFOs were always out there, but a sci-fi show dedicated to like UFO hunting and things like that, I don't know if I I can recall one. Can you? Well, no, that's that's why that's my go-to, but I also I know there's a there's a lot of good sci-fi out there pre-90s that I just haven't seen. So, my personal go-to tends to be I'm probably just missing something. And I know X-Files was inspired by a lot of other shows, so. It was. All right. So, because my personal go-to is, yes, you always are missing something, Matt. It just seems to me that, anyway, when we talk about American stuff, but in this case, I think you're 100% right on. So, if you're missing it, I'm missing it. I think most people might be missing it, but uh, who knows? I have some friends that could probably correct us, but they don't watch Quantum Leap, so they're probably Mm. not going to hear this podcast. So, (laughs) it's going to be a moot point. It's up to you, listeners out there. Tell us, what did the X-Files draw on to which this episode might owe some allegiance and some thanks? Hmm. Interesting question. Tell you what else, and I know we're, we're not even got started here yet, but since we're, we've kind of started going down that path, the only other thing that this show reminded me of, which took from the X-Files rather than the other way around, was Dark Skies, which, I mean, that started in the 60s, whereas this is in the late 40s, but it, it had that historical America element to it. But, yeah, yeah, anyway. I don't think I ever saw an episode of Dark Skies. Was <sighs> that like another Fox show, or...? Um, it wasn't Fox. Um, you know, I don't know what it aired on because it, it was a rival to X-Files. Once X-Files became big, it was a few years into X-Files. I don't know what it aired on, but it, it started, it had a five-year plan. It started in the 60s and it would have gone right up to 1999 had it not been cancelled after one season. So it was, yeah, like this, it, it had the kind of, it was all Project Blue Book stuff. And, um, again, had the, the kind of very X-Filesy vibe. But this isn't the Dark Skies podcast, but I'd love to do the Dark Skies podcast sometime. It's like 18 episodes. Why not? (laughs) All right. No, it's not the Dark Skies (laughs) podcast, but I have one last question about Dark Skies. Uh, Does Dark Skies have like an amazing theme song, like iconic theme song like the X-Files? I mean, I I loved the the Dark Skies theme and the opening credits, both really cool. But, you know, 20 years later, it's not got that kind of... (laughs) <laughs> I, I can't I can't do the Dark Skies theme after all this time. I just remember loving it. So eh. I would say if there's one theme song that's more iconic than the X-Files, it can only be Doctor Who. I mean, I think those might be the two top. Oh, and the Twilight Zone. So maybe three, maybe three that everyone would know. Closely followed by the Quantum Leap Season 5 remix. Yeah. <laughs> that's specifically. <laughs> and Faith of the Heart. And faith of the heart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting silly now. Yeah, I'm getting silly. I, I veered us uh, specifically into talk of theme songs because, hey, Matt, I understand we have an interview <laughs> on this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast. See how smooth I am? That was, yeah, very smooth. And oh, th- this is a guy that I have wanted to speak to since day one. So, so happy to get him. Um, so, yeah, we're later on, we're going to be speaking to Daniel James Chan, who's done all the score for the series so far. 
and he shares a loads of loads of cool stuff about his life and his career and uh, all the the fun things he gets to do for Quantum Leap. So yeah, it's it's a it's a really great interview and it was well worth the wait from my part. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing it, and uh, I'm so glad you got to talk to him because in editing all of the show mashups together, I've gotten to know um, quite a few of the motifs that he uses for the show, mm -hmm. and it's just grown on me. So now it's just another way for me to enjoy the series and enjoy the episodes when I'm rewatching them because I notice the music a lot more than I normally would have if I wasn't doing a podcast about it. So <laughs> I, yeah, I can't wait to hear that. But, uh, you know, maybe it's not Dark Skies, maybe it's not X-Files, but hey. Hey, we've already established we're not talking about Dark Skies or X-Files. We're talking Quantum Leap. Yes. Sorry, my my bad. I love this genre, so I, I'm trying really hard not to get off topic and failing. I mean, it's not the first time Quantum has gone into the UFO territory, but um, it definitely is, I think, the first time we've gotten an episode sort of like this with an investigatory flavor to it. So let's get some initial impressions. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've already established the credentials here that I love the government conspiracy kind of x files -y shtick. So on that basis, when I saw the trailer for this and when I saw some of the initial images, I thought, okay, this could go one of two ways. I could love it or hate it because if it fails, I'm going to be so disappointed. But I really like this one. It's such a good leap. And once again, the project side really exists in service of the leap and not going off and doing its own mystery box thing. So, yeah, overall, I'm really excited to get into talking about some of the great stuff about it. There's, there's, there's some plot holes, but we can deal with that because it's a good episode. Yeah, I mean... I like The X-Files, and uh, I was a fan of it for most of the time it aired. Uh, it was one of the few shows that my wife liked. Like, she didn't even think it was science fiction because mm -hmm. she doesn't like science fiction. And she liked The X-Files, therefore The X-Files <laughs> couldn't be science fiction because she liked it too. And I had to explain to her, no, it actually is, you know, the definition of science fiction. I Just love because that you like it doesn't, doesn't negate that. Yeah, it's <laughs> so crazy. But anyway. <laughs> It, to put the, all that in perspective, uh, to me, this was just like an X-Files flavored episode, but it was also a great episode of Quantum Leap. I think we had a lot of stuff going on here. I think, number one, we had a good, solid leap. And um, we also had, as you had mentioned, some good, solid back at the project stuff. And I feel like now we're sort of getting into the meat of it. I feel like episode one and episode two were to catch us up with the characters and to set up this new paradigm that they have for season two. And now we're getting to see how the two halves will start to come together as the season progresses. And when you have that gelling going together, along with some of the amazing character stuff that was in this episode, another amazing Ray episode, yeah. Ben gets so much good stuff in this one. It's just laying, I think some really good foundational stuff for the rest of the season and maybe even the rest of the series. We'll see. I mean, every season might be different, but I think there's a lot to talk about here. But on the whole, I was I was happy with the way all the stuff came across. So, I mean, let's just get into it. The stuff here with Ben, I think, was was oh. at the heart of this uh, this episode, and just his anger is coming to the fore. Right? He's he's getting to be kind of resentful. Yeah, does that gorgeous moment when he's in the car with the sheriff and he's he's explaining how grief is a strange thing i lost my fiance not too long ago 
I'm sorry. No, that's the thing. It's not anybody's fault. There's no one to blame. Except maybe for myself. Mm. When there's no one to blame, no one to fight, that's when the anger is like acid in your blood. Such a well-written piece and, yeah, showing off Ray's acting chops. Having Ray having done a quite a bit of comedy over the last two episodes. Now he's, yeah, getting well into a whole a whole different style here. Yeah, yeah. And I think that we, we see Ben getting into a different style. He's a lot more cavalier in this episode, mm. I think, because he's feeling abandoned, because he's feeling resentful. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, what his motivation is, because we see him go through a couple of different phases here. And I'm sure it, it all boils down to the fact that he's feeling hurt. He's feeling hurt and, and left behind. We get a scene where we first get a whiff of this when Addison is at the crash site with Ben and the sheriff and she shows him, oh, look. I found a partial print. There might be. Sheriff. And before she can even finish the sentence, he just cuts her off, calls the sheriff over and just goes on. It's almost like he's treating her like she's just a database. Yeah. For Ben, it's not typical. So you're saying, all right, maybe that's some of the anger coming to the fore. And then later on in the episode, when she points out that the two goons that are across the street are there for him. How's our huntsmen? Uh, where are you going? But they are dangerous. I pointed them out so that you could avoid them. Can I help you, gentlemen? Agent Cook. I don't know if he's intentionally trying to get into dangerous situations, but he's certainly not himself and it all culminates where she's saying you keep making these decisions rash decisions that, that you would not have made three years ago you mean three days ago Edison I know I'm not myself right now and to tell you the truth I don't know if I'll ever get that me back think about this like from where Ben is standing he's been leaping constantly and the news that he was basically left for dead and mm. three years have passed for them has got to be what in his real time? A couple of days, a day and a half? Yeah. How long was the bank heist? An afternoon? Yeah. Right? So it's not even. It's not even. He's 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 had a few hours relatively to process this stuff. Yeah. This is the kind of thing that you can only really get in a show like this because in real life, this doesn't happen arguably except those kind of cases where people are in comas for decades and then and then come out of them to find that the world has changed around them it's such a unique thing and just to go back because I, th I think you explained it really well but I still I, I want to focus on that some more Ben's reaction to all this it feels like the way he's treating Addison is a defense mechanism it's I'm going to bring the walls up and cut off all emotional ties with you because if I have an emotional tie to you it's going to kill me but equally it it almost goes down that um yeah that cavalier route and that wanting to feel pain in a different way i want to get into a fight i want to risk getting captured mm. it's trying to reroute that pain i i sound all psychoanalysty but it's i i think that's kind of what's happening here and it's it's such a such a fascinating thing to see and not something you expect from a show like quantum leap yeah, and you know, thank you, because you just helped me crystallize what I've been trying. It's, you know, sometimes it's hard for me to get my thoughts together in a cogent way, but from what you're saying, bam, it's manifesting in recklessness yeah. because he just feels lost anyway. So what the hell, let's go for broke. Mm -hmm. And again, this is not like the Ben that we've come to know because he's always been so mission focused, even when he didn't know it, about rescuing Addison. And now he's adrift. 
Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, and that's the other thing where um, I think that we had like just the you you remember that that moment in the last episode where you could see Ben's heartbreak, like you yes. could just see the the, ex- the exact moment here where I mean he realizes that it's over, like it's done. It's even though he's only had a couple hours to process it, it's when um, he gives himself that adrenaline rush. Yeah, yeah. I already buried you once. Please do not make me bury you again. No one made you do that. No one made you bury me after two years, but you did. That was his just like, you know what? Fuck you. You know, you left me for dead. Yeah. I mean, that was the adrenaline talking as well. I think the adrenaline helps him (laughs) (laughs) explain that, but yes. Yeah, but I mean, he follows that up with this amazing line. Yeah. And now I have to live with whatever that means for the rest of my life. Whatever kind of life this is. Not only is he mad at Addison, he's sort of mad, I think, at the universe because it's now crashing down upon him that, okay, he he leaps. He saved Addison. He completed the mission. But even though he was successful, he's not going to be rewarded for that. I mean, mm-hmm. that success led to him losing everything. And now he's just stuck leaping without any kind of discernible reason or purpose or guidance. And that's, I think, what's leaving him so hurt, bewildered, and ultimately resentful. And it's just, it struck me as so human because we did not often get to see Sam go through anything like this, even though you have to think, even though Sam put himself in that position voluntarily or involuntarily, but he just decided he needed to, you know, what, go or he'd lose his funding and lose his project. He wasn't going to do anything greater like rescue someone, even though in the books they've alluded to the fact that he did it to rescue Tom, you know, but that's all conjecture on author's parts. There's nothing in canon to say why he leaped aside from the fact that he was afraid he was going to lose funding. So Sam leaping around in time is sort of like he's made his bed. Now he's going to have to lie in it where Ben leaping around in time, he was doing it for the greater good, for a better purpose to save the person he loved. And now that person is gone. And what now? And he's not going home. So it, yeah, it's, he, he's got that moment that Sam never got. Sam always had, all right, you've leapt and you're going to keep leaping and hopefully the next leap will be the leap home. Ben had an actual final leap. He knew this was going to be his final leap and then he was going to go home. And then that was taken away from him. And the double whammy, the double whammy. He saved her life, but she's moved on. It's tough. Very tough. Yeah, it strikes me though that if he had leapt home, it might have been three years later anyway, right? I yeah. mean, who knows? It's just weird. This could have happened in any circumstance, and it's such a curveball. And it's just like, sorry, life's rough. Walk it off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Leap it off, kid. <laughs> but, the, you know, the other side of that coin is Addison. Bravo to Caitlin and to the way that they're writing Addison with this, because I think it would be so easy to have awkwardness and her avoiding it and him avoiding it. But she is just determined to face it head on and to address it for what it is, even though it's it's awkward. It hurts. It's, yeah. it's not pleasant. I think that that is the right choice for her character. And I just think dramatically, it's a lot more interesting because I was afraid they had that first scene where they're just sitting in the car taking apparently a three-hour road trip. So Addison's going to sit next to Ben for those entire three hours. That could have been the entire episode. Just them making that road trip and hashing some of this stuff out. Instead, they did it differently. They peppered it in throughout the episode. But this also bodes well for maybe some of the, the... 
I told you the fears I have with, with the whole Tom storyline in the last episode, how they're going to drib and drab it out. And are they going to make it like uh, Addison's pining for Ben, but she's with Tom. She doesn't know what to do. And Tom's going to be jealous, blah, blah, blah. I just see like a whole bunch of bullshit, to be honest with you. Soap opera bullshit. It's just, it's built for that. But if this episode is in the indication, at least as far as Addison is concerned, this is something that needs to be dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see this turning into a love triangle or a will they, won't they? It's happened and it's done and it's just how they get past it. And I appreciated how she was sensitive to the fact that, as as I said before, this is a a fairly unprecedented kind of situation. And she kind of says to Ben, like, what would help you? What what do you want to know? Do you want do you want information? Do you just want to not talk about this? And she is trying to help him through it without knowing. Okay, this is this is how you help someone through this kind of situation. And I mean, it's got to be especially hard when Ben is saying stuff like, don't give up on me again. Yes. It's like, oh, God, <laughs> just stick the knife in, Ben. Yeah. I mean, you can just imagine how bad they're all feeling about yeah. leaving him for dead. But yeah, what do you do after three years? The other strongest part of the episode was the scene with Magic and Addison, where even now she's having some doubts as to whether or not she can handle it. You think it would help sending someone else in? He thinks that I abandoned him once already. I do it again, it's only going to make it worse. But then at the very end, she goes to his office and she's like, I think you were right. I don't know if I can do this. And then Magic, he's the one who pulls the 180 and he's just like, well, you know, give it time. And... He he prefaces that by saying, All the agony and loss we went through doesn't vanish just because Ben's alive. We still carry all three years of it. And that is another thing I don't think I've ever seen on any other show, where they acknowledge the fact that they've been through this grieving process. They might still be hurting over the fact that he's gone. And just because of the fact that he came back, you know, I think on most shows, it would just be like, yay, happy day. Ben is here. And we can just forget about all that stuff. But it's yeah. like, no, we're all kind of, we're all kind of traumatized by this. And we, we don't know what the F, <laughs> you know, yeah. end, of ser- end of search for Spock. Everyone gives him a big old cuddle and uh, <laughs> touches him on the chest and lots of big smiles. Yeah, you know, so it's just another way that they're using the back at the project stuff in service of a much bigger story that's so much more cohesive than we got to see in season one. And that to me would be a challenge if I were in that writer's room and I was I was challenged with saying, okay, how are we going to make the project stuff relevant this year? Because we don't have the mystery box to Mm. fall back on. We don't have the gimmick. So we got we to gotta figure this out. Like, what is it that these people would really be going through? And I personally don't know if I'd be able to, to get 13 episodes out of Project and still make it compelling. Yeah. But it seems to me they're finding, like, real threads, real emotional threads that are much more grounded in realism than we normally get on, say, like a TV show. Yeah. And that's what Quantum Leap's been all about. And as much as I I did enjoy the mystery box last season, I also heard and understood that that kind of uh, CSI project stuff was not what Quantum Leap was about. Quantum Leap was always about people. Well, boom, it's about people. It's, It's back. This is original Quantum Leap stuff. Personalities, emotions. (laughs) <laughs> yet again i'm here scratching my head and you've got it all encapsulated 
Apparently you read the brief. Yeah. I'm still sitting here saying, I don't know. Oh, this is no, great. It's, oh, it's, it's true, though. This this is, and I, I, I don't know, I, I hope other view I hope the viewers are picking up on this and I hope the people that were that have been on the fence about this have, have realized that this is much more in keeping with the type of storytelling and that this this will grab their attention and, and keep people watching. If, even people like me that do miss the mystery box a bit. But I can definitely appreciate what they've replaced it with. Well, I, I do think we got some good back at the project dynamics in this one though. I mean we were talking yeah. about it at the top that it's pretty much in lockstep. Yes. With what's going on in the leap. But if you recall last season, after we had gotten some really egregious sort of disconnects between the project and what <laughs> was going on with Ben and Addison being everywhere, they had done more of a traditional type leap. I think it was Oh Ye of Little Faith, another Chris Christmer episode, yeah. where um, the project stuff was just really them figuring out what's going on with Ben. And, you know, how it's working into the leap and sort of sort of everything we said we wanted to see. Like, they're back at the project, working on the leap, figuring out what Ben needs to do. And then I was afraid, okay, this is what that's going to be. That's going to get boring real quick. So we got to figure out something else. And I feel like we did see some of that here. But I guess maybe it's because of the bigger emotional stuff, the bigger character stuff that's not disconnected, but connected to everything Ben is going through and that the experiences that they're sharing – this data dump research section of the back of the project stuff I found really compelling. Plus, it was um, some of the only scenes that we got with with Ian and Jen. Yeah. I especially loved in the beginning that instead of Addison giving Ben the data dump about the girl in the coma and, and what was going on with the girl who was going to be under arrest, Ian and Jen say it because – somebody back at the project would have to figure it out, feed that information to Addison, who would then feed it to Ben. So we were just seeing a step in that process. It's almost like watching Gushy and Tina yeah. coming to some conclusion, and, or Gushy and Donna, I guess, because Donna was the historian and putting the stuff in the archives and all that stuff. But, uh, but either way, to me, that was a plausible way that things might have happened back at the old Quantum Leap. It's just that we never got to see it. All we got to see was Al looking at the hand like and occasionally screaming at Gushy. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's, there's two parts to that original series dynamic. There was the, yeah, Al receiving information from whoever, but also Al apparently being an expert in everything and having run away from the circus and blah, 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 blah. Uh, having, having these, and this is a, uh, this is a discussion we've had so many times over the last season, but having everyone back at the project means they can pull on their own expertise without Addison having to be, this uh this person that's had 16 lives so yeah it, it's yeah. good that they can not not only is it people feeding addison information it's people that have specialist skills which makes it immediately more realistic and also allows the interplay yeah i'd love to have seen some tina and gushy interplay just as the the jen and ian stuff is great I feel like um, they were pairing Jen and Magic a lot last season because mm -hmm. maybe they didn't know quite what to do with those characters. But now it's for the second time we're seeing Jen and Ian <laughs> together. And yeah. I think that they play off each other just as well. One thing that we didn't get, which I guess is a thread they left purposely dangling, or maybe it has to do with Anna, I don't know. But do you remember when Jen said at the end of episode two, You need to tell them. Jen, I... Magic and Addison, you need to tell them what you did here. How you actually found Ben. What's going on with that and why has that not been picked up straight away? Is that going to be left until the mid-season finale, maybe? 
and then we'll be expected to remember that this was mentioned five, six weeks ago. I don't know. Maybe, well, it'll maybe be on a previously on, you know? Oh, yes, but I, I kind of hope for that rather than that to be teased out forcibly every single episode. We find out a little bit more about Ian's secret. I'm quite happy for that just to be dropped and then re-raised at a later point. Yeah, because I think in the old season one paradigm, it would have been built upon in exactly yeah a wheel spinny way. Yeah, and nothing would have been resolved, and then we would just be like, okay, so what now? At the point where we <laughs> we don't have any other logical reason to move things along, Janice pops up and says, "Ah, all right, I'll tell you a little bit more then." I'm back from Hawaii. <laughs> I've come back from Hawaii to tell it's you. Your kids, it's your kids, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Janice is in Hawaii. Yeah, I wonder, is she living with Magnum now? Is, is she living with Magnum and Katie and Tom and Jim Bonnick? Jim Bonnick <laughs> and their, their, their grandkids, I guess, right? Everyone in the Belisariverse moves to Hawaii at some point. Belisariverse? Belisariverse. <laughs> There's going to be a new buddy cop comedy about Janice and uh, Katie's daughter. Yes. She's going to be like a Hawaii private eye. And Janice is going to be with the NSA, and I, I don't know. I just feel like they'd be contemporaries, right? They'd be around the same age. As a big fan of Janice, and still gutted that she's not in this season, I appreciate finding out what happened to her. I did think, it's been three years, something bad happens, and the first thing Addison says is, oh, oh, it's Janice again, is it? Did I just get kicked out? Okay. Please do not tell me that this is Janice again. I mean, get over it, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That woman has a chip on her shoulder about Janice. Well, it's, you know, she tried to be the hologram. You know, Janice pops up with her own imaging chamber, her own handling. She's like stealing the thunder. Three years ago! Well, you think about it, you slip back into where you were those three years ago. Yeah, I suppose. It's I suppose. almost like muscle memory. It's like, oh, we're Project Quantum Leap. Don't trust Janice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she saved the day in the end. Several times. I'm just saying, Janice at Ben's funeral must have been awkward. Yeah. Um, I've got to think, if we're going to speak about the family Calavici here, I have more evidence that magic has a thing with Beth. And <laughs> the reason I say that is because at the very end, when he gave that whole we're all still grieving speech, he calls somebody on the phone and he's like, Hey, it's me. Got a minute. This is all a lot harder than I thought. Who else could he possibly talk to that would have the clearance to know about this stuff? I, well, I, I can't imagine anybody but Beth would know about some guy being lost in time on a top secret government project. Yeah, I mean, I I could see how he, he might be friends with Beth and they're having a nice friendly discussion and also discussing what anniversary present he's bought somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm struggling with this one, but I, I know it's probably true. I, I I accept that. He says, hi, it's me. So that's, that's pretty, you know, even at work when people know who I am, I say, hi, it's Chris, just to make sure there are no ambiguities. When I'm talking to Laura, I'm just like, hey, hon, it's me. So Yeah, but I hey, hey hon, it was just a hi, it's me. There was no, no pet name going on there. <laughs> I don't know. All I know is that if they are together, I would hope that they would explore that a little bit more in depth as part of the back of the project stuff in the sense of 
how does this affect Magic's legacy with the original Quantum? Does he feel guilty because he and Hal had become friends? Does he feel guilty that Sam saved him ultimately to have him date Al's wife? I think that there are many interesting story possibilities that they could explore with that, which is why I'm sort of on that team. Plus, I want to see Susan come back. Yeah, don't we all? Yes, 100%. And I, I would be fine with that. It's just an adjustment. But it's, it's got it's got some good parallels with what's going on there with Addison having given up on Ben and then moving on. Beth has been through all that and met magic on the other side, eventually. Yeah, true, true. And we still don't know much about magic. We don't. I, I think that Ernie, when he spoke to us way back when, a million years ago, for season one had alluded to the fact that magic had a family and that he was maybe estranged from his family. At least he had a daughter or something like that. Yeah. Well, the, the daughter's mentioned on screen, but, but we don't know anything other than that. Right. So yeah, maybe we can get some of that going too. I mean, who knows what magic story is honestly, besides being, you know, project Papa, I'd like to get a little bit more backstory on him and expand on his character because I feel like we've gotten at least some service to all of the back at the projects. I mean, we have quite a few episodes focusing on Ian in the first uh, season. We have um, at least some nods to Jen's past with her black ops and her deadbeat dad and that kind of stuff. Addison, of course, we know all about her military service and the fact that she was going to be a leaper. We've gotten next to nothing about magic other than the fact that Sam leapt into him and that he is the head of the project. And that's it. So, like, mm. what else do we know about him? This once-mentioned daughter? I mean, it, blink and you miss it. Yeah, there's a lot more to explore. Yeah, he's got the most interesting backstory of all of them, mm. vis-a-vis the original series. So, mm. hmm. All right, so let's stick to the project stuff for now, and then maybe we can, we, we can work some of that into the Leap stuff. Yeah. One little bit of lore here that I think blends with stuff that we did see in the original series is that apparently Addison can be blocked by local jamming technology because we have that scene in the car when the UFO is above Ben and the sheriff, and all of a sudden they can't hear her. Yeah. She blips out of existence. So. Tell me if you weren't thinking about Good Morning Peoria. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Okay. And and Revenge of the Evil Leaper to an extent as well. We're talking about the hypnotism in that one or No, no, the um there's the electricity um Oh, you know, I can't even remember the details behind it, but it definitely causes problems towards the end. All right. So, but we're saying there is precedence for this in the show because it struck me as, you know, kind of a neat moment. Was it a a plot convenience thing or or not? But they did get Addison back eventually. And it was in time for her to see Ben like laid out on the gurney, passed out again with uh, that Gamma 5, (laughs) Gamma Blue 5, whatever they were injecting him with. This was maybe one of the stronger uses of the hologram. In the series so far, because even though Ben was down for the count, Addison's like, yeah, I saw it all. And I can relate it to you Mm. as if you weren't knocked out, which I don't know if we've seen that yet in this series. It just seemed like a more clever use of the hologram. It it is. It slightly bothered me that there were were hours where Addison could have been wandering around and just hoping to try and find the base. Just, just by looking around without needing Ben to nearly put himself into a coma. But 
as long as you overlook that, it, it's cool. I, I just want to go back quickly because I had to look this up. I just had to double check. So in Revenge of the Evil Leaper, there's an electric fence around the prison, which uh, does block the um, holograms and the uh, or in- interferes with the holograms interacting with the leapers. It's not just the hypnotism. Gotcha. And I'm thinking this is the first time we've seen Addison booted out of the program since uh, why September blah 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 nineteen blah 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 the the premiere one hundred one the yeah. series premiere yeah yeah one hundred one and that's because I think the imaging chamber just went offline yeah because they were still figuring it out so I'm hoping that maybe this is planting a seed for them doing something more with that. Mm. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, introducing the the vulnerability and the ability to find a, a plot-related reason to leave Ben by himself again for a bit. Gives opportunities, even if it's just for a scene or two. It gives all, all kinds of possibilities for Addison. As uh, one of the, the bits of feedback we heard last week uh, said, you know, yeah. having Addison not there all the time actually adds a little bit more more drama that quite often the original series used to have with Al not showing up until 10 minutes in. Even if we do have her showing up, the dynamic between them is so different now. Mm. And I feel like Ben's character is so different now at the end of this episode that I don't know if we're going to get that same sort of just rush, rush, rush. It's also maybe because we don't have to worry about getting X, Y, Z done at back at the project. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure. I just, like most of the um, respondents last week, most of the feedback, I felt it was a welcome change too, to see Ben figuring it out because we're getting to know Ben as a human being more and what makes him tick, what drives him, what what are his techniques to be a leaper? I want to keep exploring that. So a lot of strong, a lot of strong stuff here in the leap, just plot wise. I thought that this was more akin to this took too long as opposed to Ben and Teller. Yeah. It was much more dynamic and maybe that had a lot to do with the excellent excellent performance of Lewis Hertham, who played Sheriff Baker. Yes. Yeah. I liked him when I watched the episode the first time, but when I watched it the second time, I was just, I was wrapped. I was wrapped by his performance. He was so good. Yeah. He had to to give so much. That must have been an actor's dream to be given a character like that that's got so much depth and different angles to play. And, And he does it all so well and quite subtly. He doesn't go from one edge of the spectrum to the other. Like you say, it's a very watchable performance. You get you get drawn into it. Yeah, and maybe because he was just so staid and so steady, whereas mm. we had sort of the awkwardness between Ben and Addison, yeah. and we had Ben being somewhat reckless. He was sort of a grounding presence in the episode. He had that gravitas, I guess, is, yes. is really what, what made it. So, yeah, I mean, kudos to you, Lewis, for uh, hopefully when the strike is over, we can talk to him and some of these I'd other people because, yeah, I'd love to hear what he thought about it. I think and I don't want to be down on Ben and Teller because I, I did really enjoy it. It's just um, when when you look at the, the three leap portions so far, I think for me, what this has in common with uh, 201, with, with this took too long, is that the characters and the scenario have this very kind of lived-in feel. 202 was bank heist. There are people in a bank. There's guns. And although there's there's some, some good emotional stuff around that, there was something about it that just didn't quite gel for me as, as quite as natural. Whereas 
these ones, yeah, despite the fact that I've never been in a downed plane in Russia or, or in the 40s ever, um, there's just something about both these scenarios that you felt the characters and you felt the lives they were living and the sheriff with his, uh, the, the family and all the, the relations that he had to the town around him, something about it all pulled together. And I, I don't know if I'm articulating well enough how, because I'm not even sure how myself. It just, it just did. And it felt like, it felt like we'd just been dropped into the middle of a, an ongoing TV series about Starlight in 1949. We've just dropped into a little portion of it. Right. It's almost like, uh, like Gunsmoke where Sheriff Baker yes. is like Marshall Dillon and <laughs> Ben is just the guest star of the week, right? <laughs> yeah. 100%. And that's how a lot of the best quantum leaps have been. It, they don't feel like they're a staged episode to fit around Sam. It, it's a whole world that Sam has just been placed into. It's funny now that oh, this just yelled for me. I don't know why, but I guess it's a culmination of everything we've been talking about. But just the thankless role that Dean had on Quantum in many mm-hmm. ways. It's a lot of the same stuff that we were complaining about with Addison in the first season, just coming in and being a data dump for Ben and telling him what he needed to do. But for some reason, there seemed to be much more authenticity in Dean's portrayal of that role to the point where it didn't feel awkward. It didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like, like mm-hmm. just he's here to spout facts and figures. There was just more personality and that's not to down Caitlin, but, and I do have a point here. I feel like seeing an episode like this, which had much more balance, gives Caitlin an opportunity if she indeed continues to be the hologram, which I, I can't imagine why they would change up that dynamic. It's the series. So, but it, it gives her much more of an opportunity to approach things maybe the way Dean did or in a way that's her own, but as authentic seeming as Dean's portrayal was because now she's in a different place with Ben Mm. and she's got to figure out a way forward and how to be his hologram again. I mean, that was one of the central themes of this episode. And I feel like we got glimmers of that here, especially, you know, after that gut wrenching scene where he's like, you didn't have to bury me. You didn't have to leave me for dead. I think that it's also going to shift the way that she approaches how she does her job. And maybe that's something else that's giving us more of that cohesive feeling and sort of that authenticity that the original quantum gave us. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Well, I mean, uh, let's hope. I mean, this is maybe me projecting too as a fan and what I liked about the old series. It's just, it's kind of like when in 201, when... I was just seeing inklings of mirror image everywhere because that's how I approach this stuff. So yeah. it could just be a Chris Head trip, you know? But I would hope that we we get to have some more of that, give her a more nuanced portrayal so that she can make the hologram character her own just as much as Dean was able to make it his own. And I, I hope you're right that she does continue to be, I'm sure, I'm sure she will be, that she'll continue to be the hologram. We know from the trailer that uh, Magic steps in as a hologram for the Career Town episode, but um, I'm assuming there's a reason for that and it's a one-off. Yeah, I wonder if they'll play with that as the season goes on. Maybe if there is an episode more apropos yeah. to someone who has that expertise back at the project since we're not constrained by brainwaves. Yeah, and that that's exactly what I was saying back in 
when we were talking about 103, when they were starting to establish that, hey, Addison's getting exhausted here. And I was screaming down the microphone, why don't you, you've got a whole project here, and they're not connected by brainwaves, start swapping people out. And it, it didn't really happen until, uh, well, basically until Ian helped Ben land the plane, right? Well, no, no. No, no, no? No, well, Jen, Jen helped with the uh, Ben song for the defense. That was before that, wasn't it? You're quite right. I was getting them in the wrong order in my head. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because the plane one was the second to last before Judgment Day. Of course. Yes, so, yes. But yeah, so they, they did toy with that last season. Now, the ironic thing is, as much as I liked that, I would hate for them to rely on that as a gimmick this season because of everything I just said about Caitlin being able to own the part in a way that she hasn't been able to before. Yeah. Well, we'll see. These things will be uh, revealed. I can almost guarantee that no matter what it is we're thinking, it'll come up as something different. <laughs> <laughs> Because it always does. It always does. So, But we are talking a little bit about uh, connective tissue to the original series and uh, different kinds of paradigms that are starting to resurface. I believe we have our first kiss with history in this episode. Is that true? Because Ben does invent, apparently, (laughs) Area 51. There's an abandoned airfield in Groom Lake, Nevada. You should check it out. I think it's called Area 51. I mean, it's it's a good... It's, it's one of those the classic series types of Kiss with Histories that don't quite work. Because all the best ones don't quite work. Because technically... I'm sorry, I'm going to be that guy. Technically, it wasn't called <laughs> Area 51 at the time. That came later. So quite how the military guy would have been able to find this place just from... Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's out there somewhere and it's called Area 51. Well, it's not. So how would you find that? But... Fine. It's still a cool <laughs> moment. It's, it's a really cool moment. It made me smile. It made me smile and then reach for Wikipedia, but it made me smile. Well, I mean, I was reaching for Wikipedia too, because we have all of this hocus pocus, this this alien abduction. It's not aliens. Mm. And this is some place where this series is making a firm stand. We thought that we were seeing a demon in OE of Little Faith. And maybe this is a Chris Christmas thing. You know, it turns out that that black mass that seemed to be a writhing evil presence in the room possessing that girl was actually just Janice trying to get through. And that was how the hologram was manifesting itself. Mm. Don't ask me how that worked. But... In this one, it's like, yeah, sorry, no supernatural here either. It's the zero point jet. Yeah. And the Gamma Blue 5 as the, the drugging agent and these these night vision goggles. I don't know if they were supposed to be like prototype night vision goggles with the three lenses. So it's not like at the end of Starlight Starbright where Sam is definitely ready to get on that spaceship. There's spaceships in this universe, but they're not copping to it. Once again, we have logical explanations for everything. And I tried to go on Wikipedia to see what that crap was that they had mentioned yeah. at the end. As as Ben calls it a zero-point jet, I could not find anything about, like, zero-point aircraft. It's more like something about, like, energy theory and having something that produces more energy than it consumes. And I, I let's put it this way. My eyes glassed over real quick yeah. when I couldn't find, like, a picture of a little round spaceship-looking plane because that's what I was looking for. But um, apparently the Gamma Blue 5 is based off of a real drug that will prevent the nervous system from talking to the brain so it can knock you out. I guess it can even put you in a coma. And it's used quite frequently recreationally. They call it, like, liquid E. So 
Are you disappointed in the fact that we're not getting any kind of the ambiguity or even straight out supernatural elements that we did in Quantum? Yeah, I I like being left to make those kind of decisions for myself. I mean, I, does it disappoint me? Not particularly, because it it was well handled at the end, but it also felt also felt a little simple and a little it's been done. And I don't know if it has been done, but it definitely. I don't know. It, it felt like a cliche, even though uh, maybe it's not. It just it felt too simple, too buttoned up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know because frequently a lot of the stuff on the original series when it did like, hey, there's Bigfoot waving goodbye just as Sam leaps. I'm like, give me a break, come on. But now I'm just like, well, I wish they would at least keep the door open for the possibility. Yeah. That it was something a little bit more. And if you're going to dabble in these types of episodes, like I really thought that this was going to be this year's Halloween episode because of the proximity to Halloween where it's airing. It doesn't seem to me, though, that they've made, quote, a Halloween episode this year, though. I guess we'll figure it out by, Mm. what, episode five will be around the same week as Halloween. So I don't know. I don't know. But I really thought there would be some kind of question mark at the end of this one. Yeah. Yeah, I was expecting it. And maybe in that sense, it was a surprise twist that we were probably all expecting it to have a, but what if? And then one didn't come. (laughs) Not to say that that made the episode bad. I guess it's personal preference. Hmm. Speaking of, of lore and connections to the original series again, Matt, will you indulge me? Always. Go on. <laughs> I do believe this is not the first radio sighting I've had in the new quantum. There were quite a few in OE of Little Faith. Chris Christmer again. I don't he's the common denominator. I'm gonna have like a murder board with Chris Christmer's face and like all of the red <laughs> all the red threads going to these different connections. Yeah. It seems like every episode he's speaking directly to me through my fillings or something. But uh mm-hmm. we had, I believe, our first radio crossover with a radio that appeared in the original series that has now shown up in the new series. So I could not let this go by unheralded. I'm so glad you didn't. I'm listening. I'm all ears. If you recall, there was a radio that showed up in How the Test Was Won, well, there were several in How the Test Was Won, that also showed up in Double Identity, which... uh, was the Godfather episode, the Married to the Mob episode, for those who don't Mm -hmm. know. It was, I had pegged it as a 1952 RCA3RF91. That means nothing to anybody but me. It's in the diner behind uh, Hannah when Ben and Hannah are having their scenes together. You can just see it up in the corner. It's sort of like a boxy radio with like an airplane dial. That's what they called it because it has a round circular dial with like two wings that taper off the side. And it's very distinctive. And I said, hey, that's that radio from Double Identity. (laughs) They call it the Woodland. I don't know why. It's just nicknamed the Woodland. This leap was 1949. The one that I pegged the one in Double Identity to was made in 1952. And I tried to find earlier versions of that radio. And the closest I found was 1951. So this radio is anachronistic. It does not belong in that diner. But it gives me hope that Hannah might be more than she appears. Because we haven't talked about Hannah yet. <laughs> we haven't. I think you're reaching, but I'm glad we've, we've moved on to Hannah. Maybe she, maybe she has stuff that she brings with her. 
And maybe she's a time traveler too. I don't know. We 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 got to get into the Hannah stuff. Yeah. We've been talking an hour. I think we've been talking around it for How an hour. How have we but, not talked about Hannah? Yeah, and we've finally gotten like the introduction of the second new main cast member for this season, and quite the introduction. Not the bombshell that we were speculating on at the end of the last episode, was it? It was so much more organic to the leap plot. Yeah. She's just a, a regular character. So far, I'm sort of feeling the way that I did about Tom after we first met him. Like, jury's still out, but not not in a bad way, just because not much has really happened. The only observation I made about her was that she seemed... It was obvious, I think, if you were watching not having seen the press release a few weeks back, I think it's obvious that there's going to be something there because... They kept returning to her when there didn't necessarily have to be a natural reason why. She seemed oddly crowbarred into bits of the plot. Like, hey, hmm. this, this is our new regular. When she was on screen, there was nothing wrong with anything that was written for her. And, and she's a a fine character. I'm just not sure how she's going to come back or or how the interest is going to be. It was it was a quiet start for her. Put it that way for me. It was It was quiet. I, I think you're completely wrong. <laughs> okay, go on then. <laughs> I feel quite the opposite. Um, no, she didn't come in with a bang. There was no big revelation, but I actually really liked that. I adored that because we got to know her more as a character in this one, so much more organically as part of the leap. I feel like, and this is not to down the Tom character or what they might do with it, but Tom is introduced just as a matter of plot complication to give us something to maybe go back to at the project as we need to and to make uh, Caitlin's job a little bit more interesting to give her different storylines other than being the Al of the series, right? Mm. I feel like Hannah comes in stealthily. She comes in as just someone else on the leap who is very like-minded with Ben and very sort of anachronistic for her time in the sense that she's a trained scientist and um, it's not something that we often see uh, women in that time period portrayed as. And she's got this curious mind. And she says, Then again, my friends think I'm crazy because I believe in all kinds of impossible things. And I loved her little analogy that she said, if somebody from the 1850s walked in here, explain airplanes, explain yo-yos yeah. to anyone who hasn't seen it. That kind of mindset to me is so intriguing and so much fun. And say she's not a time traveler. I mean, okay, so... I'm thinking, is she an evil leaper? I mean, did she bring that radio in just to screw up the timeline? <laughs> those two years, you never know, you know? It could be a butterfly effect thing. But how are they going to carry this character forward? And even if you didn't know that she was going to be carried forward, I feel like she was a very nice, interesting part of this story. And I felt like she had that part in the plot where she was watching the daughter while they went to go investigate the black site. And I thought it was a nice way to bring the character into the story. Like it felt natural because she had, she'd gotten an affinity with Ben and he felt like he could trust her based on their conversations together. So it did not seem crowbarred into me that they turned to her when they needed to put the girls, you know, on ice a little bit. Mm, she was some chick that he'd been chatting to and uh, she was interesting. And uh, clearly for a guy that's hurting quite a bit, he he might be quite intrigued by her. But then, yeah, suddenly... I think they established she works at the hotel as well, don't they? So there's yeah, there's obviously a, a logical plot reason for it that she she has two jobs. They bring her in for that. I I don't know. I didn't buy that. It's it's weird. You and I saw exactly the same stuff, but I just didn't find it organic. 
but I think that character has a lot of potential and I'm I am super excited to see where it goes. I do not think she'll be a time traveler or an evil leaper. I think this is a time traveler's wife type situation and we're just going to be seeing a handful of leaps around the 40s and 50s and I'm fine with that. I think that could be really cool in itself. Well, that's cool. So, but you got to think eventually Ben is going to reveal himself to her. And I would have loved to have seen as he leapt out her reaction, because for all we know, she was seeing Ben as Ben. For all we know, she might see him as a leaper, but we just, we, we didn't get, we actually leapt with Ben this time. Yeah. And um, yeah, he went to another leap and, and that was the last we saw of Hannah. So I wonder if when we pick up with her again, when she runs into him, she's going to say, it's you or, or something like that. Like maybe she can see, maybe she's got a natural alpha state, like a child or a horse, like Widowmaker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Eliza Taylor being compared to a, a child or a horse. <laughs> Your performance was fantastic. Not at all horse-like. Well, the only reason I'm, I'm maybe clinging to that as some sort of possibility is because, number one, it would be one of the few things that would make sense in-universe. Yes, for sure. Number two, the fact that they really did hammer home the fact that she's got a curious mind and is willing to believe in the impossible because it intrigues her, it jazzes her, it's, it, it sparks whatever her scientific interests are and things like that. So that's where my head is with that. Again – anything that we seem to think of with this series turns out not to be the case. So I don't know. I don't know. Do you have any theories on it? I know you don't think she's an evil leaper. I know you don't think she's a fellow time traveler, but what do you... No, that's it. Like I say, I I think... um, And yeah, I I assume most people get the reference, but um, just for the the three people that don't, uh, Time Traveler's Wife was a... I think it started off as a book, right? And it's been a film and a TV miniseries. And Doctor Who lifted the plot for a couple of seasons as well. And it's basically about a woman who's living her life in order, uh, who falls in love with a time traveller who's leaping around his own life out of control. So he's living the relationship out of order. And I feel like that in itself, like I say, Quantum Leap wouldn't be the first people to lift from Time Traveller's Wife because Doctor Who did it too. That in itself would be an interesting enough plot without needing time travel shenanigans. If there are time travel shenanigans... I'm not opposed to that either. I'm, I think you it hear me? Go... I'm rubbing. I'm rubbing my hands together. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I don't think there's there's very little that could come out of this that I'd be disappointed by. I'm I'm really open to wherever this goes. It's just my my gut tells me there's nothing timey wimey here. Gotcha. And, I, you know, I'm always looking for the timey-wimey. I can't help it. Yeah. And I have purposely avoided the time traveler's wife because it's just seemed like, and I'm just going to say it, some kind of Oprah book club bullshit that just <laughs> happened to incorporate time travel into romance. And it just seemed like everything that I don't like about fiction Aww. encased in a book that also happens to have a time traveler in it. So – I, I don't know. I, that's my bias coming through. So I think I'm going to avoid it now because I don't want it to color what I think might happen with Sam and Hannah, if indeed you are correct. I want this to be its own quantum leap thing for me anyway. Even if it's a complete lift of Time Traveler's yes. Wife, at least I won't have the Time Traveler's Wife baggage to ruin it for me. <laughs> well, sorry, I think I, think I just have because <laughs> if it does go down that route, that's all you need to know. So... Yeah, I, I may have given you that baggage, but... Well, 
Yeah, but again, I have nothing to compare it to, really. It's just we're talking about abstracts as far as I'm concerned. Okay. So, okay. Anyway, I mean, I think Eliza was really good in the episode. I think that she's a nice presence on screen. I enjoyed her chemistry with Ben. So if they are going to have, like, the Ben and Hannah show for, uh, you know, a few episodes this season, I'm all for it because – I like what I've seen so far, and if you're going to expand on it, I think you have the right two actors to do it. Yeah, there's a lot of potential there. Let's see if it lives up to it. So um, I don't know if I have any other notes when it comes to Closure Encounters. Uh, Is there anything that you want to cover that we haven't? The only thing I wanted to call out, and I I almost called it out at the start, but we were going down a rabbit hole that uh, could have taken up the entire podcast, is the visual ties back to... The X-Files, and again, probably shows of its ilk. Particularly, but not only, the flashback sequence where Carrie's narrating the abduction, and there's, there's, in, in the present day, as you're seeing her talking, there's the light coming in from the window kind of breaking across her face, and then in the flashback, there's lots of, lots of very green light going on, just the, the natural hue is very green, and then the lights coming from overhead, Sort of flaring out and and breaking through over what we can see and the uh, all the cutting around it was very very X Files and I I love what Chris Grisma did there I think it's just it's such a beautifully directed scene even I think if you haven't seen a show like that I think it's a wonderfully directed scene but particularly because it gave me that that nostalgia vibe for from one of my favorite shows of the nineties I had not even really been consciously aware of that until you just mentioned it, but the fact that, you know, we're used to this language of alien abduction, of the way it was shown here as well, thanks to the X-Files. So it's something now that is in the zeitgeist culturally. And that's why I say when you talk about, oh, maybe the X-Files took it from other shows, I really don't think it did. Mm -hmm. Or anyway, for anybody of our generation or later, I think the X-Files is like the touchstone. So we have the X-Files to thank for those scenes being as effective as they were, because I feel like the X-Files taught us how to do that stuff mm-hmm. and uh i thought those scenes were terrific uh, it reminded me a little bit of supernatural too so mm. there's kind of a mishmash of both in that either way some really terrific stuff and this is something that i forgot to mention when we were talking about uh this took too long the ben and teller episode didn't lend itself to this just because of the nature of sort of the one room kind of set it was in the bank but the cinematography And the photography in This Took Too Long was just so sweeping. It it reminded me of, once again, how the test was won. If you were going to say anything about that episode, you can say that it had a very cinematic feel. There were a lot of sweeping shots, a lot of landscapes, a lot of just beautiful compositions. And I feel like there was so much of that in this took too long. It, again, with those those vistas when they're in the Russian countryside, just driving a Jeep or something, but the way the sunlight is on the screen and the way the landscape is portrayed and as it's going into dusk with some of that montage stuff, I guess the reason why I realized it after the fact was because I was watching it on my computer uh, when we originally did the episode. I hadn't seen it on a big screen yet, but since then I've watched it on Peacock like twice. I love that episode so much. I've watched it twice, (laughs) even after we put the show out. And 
it just struck me when it was on my big screen, the cinematography, and how lush it was. And I feel like this one is akin to that with those big set pieces, with the abduction and a lot of the stuff at night when they're having the chase. Even Ben is involved in one with the sheriff. I like that. And then we also had the scene where the sheriff is playing chicken with the two guys that are trailing them. Like, I thought that that was an amazing scene. And, and it's just, once again, it's just the composition. It's sort of a much more cinematic look to all of it. I think that that uh, has been another consistent strength of the new season so far. Yes. All right. So much good stuff. So much good stuff. I can't believe, yeah, we can we can just go an hour. No problem. It's just... <laughs> it's the, when there's this much to talk about. Yes. I think now, uh, though we have been going an hour, so it's probably about time to get some final thoughts. Matt, what are your final thoughts on Closure Encounters? This is such a good episode. Because of the nature of the story arc, it, this is one of those episodes I would love to just show a person that's new to the series. But because of the nature of the story arc, you can't. It just it wouldn't work. But the leap portion of it is is just so so fun and engaging. I would love to sit someone down and say this this is what Quantum Leap is. Um, it's it's really great and it's so good to see. As as you mentioned earlier, Chris, the first two episodes were really about introducing the characters again and introducing the characters for a brand new audience uh, coming in who may pick up the show between seasons. This is the first episode that really establishes what I assume is going to be the dynamic for the rest of the season, where the project is is there and prominent, but it's there working in service of the leap. So I couldn't be happier about any of that. I, I agree. And I think that... Um for me, the best way to put it is they're dangling some threads this season that are somewhat new threads that they could make into something that's disastrous, but I feel like they're picking them up carefully and they're weaving them thoughtfully and they really are laying the groundwork for different types of relationships and sort of different things than we were able to do in season one that are just so interesting to me. And uh, I'm really happy with the way I'm, we're early days yet. We're only in episode three, but I'm, I'm really loving the way everything is coming together so far. And there's still so much more to go and I'm looking forward to it. I'm not frustrated by the fact that we don't know everything yet i'm intrigued by yes. ooh, how are how are these things going to play out and that's a much better place to be in than just oh what's the mystery this week and how do we get past it next week it's more like oh these are where the characters are now and i can't wait to see how this evolves and changes and grows organically from an honest place not just from a dramatic place so we've been going too long now. I'm going to close the book on this discussion of closure encounters. Kind of a dumb name. Anyway, get it. <laughs> They're getting closure. But anyway, I digress. Don't go anywhere because when we come back, we will be bringing you our interview with composer Daniel James Chan. Stay tuned. The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. Are you a fan of the Apple TV show for all mankind? Then you'll love moon show a for all mankind podcast, which you can find on the infinite potato Alliance podcast network. I'm your host, Nick Yeager, and each week I discuss successive episodes of For All Mankind with a rotating panel of guests. 
Join us and catch up on seasons one through three before season four premieres in November. Moon Show, a for all mankind podcast. Moon Show, you are go for launch. This is Chris Grismer, and you are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. So, Matt, I, I never asked you the obvious question during the during the recording. How many UFOs have you seen? Uh, 67. 67. You? Uh, uh, not 67? I have a little notebook. <laughs> That's not something I would have, uh, you know, wow. So do you, do you usually go on hunts? Do they come to you? It's the triangle hat from Richard Hurd, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Ever since I got that, I just, I, I step outside and as long as it's dark, I step outside and, and there's, there's one near my house. I can't, I can't do anything about it. It won't go away. Chris, help me. I need help. <laughs> I mean, there, there's no doubt. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> but uh, hey, do you also get, because of that hat, I'm sure you get music through the fillings in your teeth, right? Like radio broadcasts and things like that? Yes. The, the, the aliens are playing the music back to us. Is it Daniel James Chan music? If only it was. <laughs> uh, if only it was, because there's some great music right there. I'd be quite happy just listening to that all day. I, for one, hope you ask them all about this kind of stuff during the interview, but we'll all get to hear right now whether you did or not. As promised, here is our interview with Daniel James Chan. Hello, Leapers. This is Matt Dale with the Quantum Leap Podcast, and I'm really excited today because we've got an interviewee who I have been wanting to speak to since day one. Uh, everyone on the podcast is a big fan of his work and his contribution to the show. Uh, it is the man responsible for the show's amazing soundtrack. It's Daniel James Chan. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for your time. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm just glad to be here. Um, doing better now that I know that... Uh, the writers have been able to resume work on the show. So hopefully the actors are soon to follow, but um, that that's always good to people getting back to work. Yeah, that's exciting. I guess, um, I guess things must be, you know, we, we all focus on, we've, we've been so focused on the strikes for the, the writers and, and the actors, but obviously it's affecting everyone else. I guess you haven't been able to do much work the last few months either for that reason. So you, you gearing up now, the writer's room is back in action. Right. And um, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing as far as the strikes, but we, we, we were able to continue working a little bit because they had front loaded the work on the season two scripts. So we were spared a little bit of the, the length of the strike because we had some things to work on as far as the post-production. Um, but then, yeah, once we got through those episodes, then we started to feel what everyone else was feeling. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very strange thing, especially when, you know, you know, it just didn't make sense why the powers that be were holding out for so long. Cause they're just hurting their own bottom line. And, and then after all this, they're supposed to go back into the rooms with these people and, and yeah. get these people to be creative for them after, you know, making them struggle and, yeah, it's all it's all unpleasant, but I'm I'm glad it's the end is in sight. Hopefully, so yeah. So so uh, all of us, um, I know, yeah, fandom's been behind the actors and the writers, and 
yeah, so great that at least one of them has been resolved. Pretty much the, the longest strikes from, from both organizations as well. So, yeah, unprecedented nearly this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely we'll talk about what you're doing right now with Quantum Leap and what your plans are over the coming months. But I'd, I'd love to start off just by understanding a bit about your background and what what got you into to music in the first place. Was that something that you always wanted to do? Um, how, how did you how did you get started as a composer? Well, music from a very young age was always something that I enjoyed. I enjoyed singing. I enjoy. That was like the one thing about going to church that I was excited about was the singing. Um, and my grandfather was like a self-taught guitar player. He liked country western music. Um, couldn't read music or anything. He was just everything by ear and. I think being around that as a kid, especially a very young kid and just seeing him play with his friends and it was just such a, it just became part of my like fabric from very early on. And I think that helped plant the seeds so that later on when, you know, I was in school and I started to see like the bands and the orchestras and the, and I thought, Oh, that seems like something I'd want to do. And then I had a teacher who, was a big music nerd and she showed us videotapes of the PBS show, um, boss, uh, the evening at pops, which was done in the eighties and maybe early nineties. And it was John Williams conducting the Boston pops orchestra, uh, doing all sorts of things, but it was so informative and so educational. And the first time I sort of, realize that all these movies that we love have all these musicians supporting everything was he had a he did a he did a scene from et and he had his you know so i could see that oh there's an orchestra there oh i didn't think that that's what happens and he was doing it live to the scene and it was just like uh, the most magical thing you know, I was like, I feel all these things from this, you know, these moving images and this music. And it was just like, I still get chills thinking about how I felt watching that. And, um, you just chase, you just chase after that feeling, you know, so that's, uh, so he's responsible for dragging me into this, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, uh, earlier on, I was, I was thinking about preparing for this interview and thinking, I'm, I'm so underqualified for this interview because I'm, I'm, I, I have no musical talent whatsoever. And the, the one thing that I was thinking was, I do not understand how people can be up on stage banging and scraping things together and it brings out this emotional reaction with me. So it's really, it's good to hear that you felt the same, same kind of way. And, but you obviously took that in a much more structured and successful way than I did. I just appreciate it, even if I don't understand it. So it, it was always, um, it was always about film and TV composing for you then, was it? Was that? It, I, I didn't realize it, but yes. And um, it was only when I started to get further into the music studies that, you know, I knew I was like, well, I enjoy concert music and I enjoy all that. I, I didn't like, that's not where I wanted to live. You know, I don't mind working in that, but I didn't want to make my living trying to get new commissions and, um, or maybe teaching. And I just thought, no, I, I really like the challenge of, um, 
like, you know, John Williams is a big example, but another example is Elmer Bernstein, who had such a wide and varied career. And I just think it's awesome that composers in film and TV get to do Westerns or, you know, rom-coms or horror movies or sci-fi. And if you're fortunate, you get to play in all of these different genres. And that's just so fun. And I didn't see that kind of thing evolving on the paths of doing concert music. I think maybe it's different for like musical theater. That that could also be really enjoyable. But for me, I was like, I want to play in, you know, all those different sandboxes and get a chance to, to experiment with styles and and have fun. So I feel like that was probably the, the final motivator to specialize yeah. was with all that. And I know I'm skipping ahead, but all those different genres uh, in Quantum Leap. I mean, everything you've just said, that's that's one week to the next in QL. So, um, so I was having a look at your backgrounds, and I know some of your earlier work was in Star Trek fan films. I, you got an, an interest in Star Trek? Was that just a way of getting uh, some exposure to the industry? Tell me about that. Yeah, Star Trek is another key to sort of pushing me over the edge to, to going into music. I I latched on to the next generation as a kid. Um, there's like many reasons for that, but um, Patrick Stewart's character became like a sort of role model. Um, and when he started getting into music in the show, that's when I was like, oh, okay, I should probably pay more attention to classical music. And, uh, so I remember after he was rehearsing some kind of piece with his, uh, with his flute, I was like, I need to find that. I want to find that CD. I want to hear the rest of that music. So I went and tracked that down. And, um, so that's always been a thing. And I remember my first soundtrack CD was from the film Generations. And I just planted it in the boom box and I sat there and I just had it over and over and over. And then I dragged out the keyboard and tried to play along with it. So Star Trek, yeah, has always been um, another uh, sort of um, influence for sure, because they've always had just really great symphonic scores. Um, those TV shows all had 40, 50 piece orchestras, if not more. Um, and that just that just made it sound so awesome and um, elevated it for sure. So, um, so yeah, I always want to work in star trek and then when i got out to usc for school um i saw that there were all these fan films i was like, i want to i want to do that so i think i messaged one guy and i was like hey i'm a composer and I'd, I'd like to work with you and so he found out where he could slot me in and that's just yeah it was it was fun it was a good it was a good experience too um getting to play in the star trek you know vibe but also like learn. <laughs> so it was great. And sticking on the topic of Star Trek for a moment, um, one thing that I always noticed uh, back then and, and something that I think has, has changed more recently, they always had next generation, certainly always had a rotation of around three or four different composers. And it changed a couple of times throughout the series, but I was always very conscious of, okay, this is a Dennis McCarthy score. I recognize mm -hmm. this immediately and so on and so on. It, something like Quantum Leap, it's it's your voice right the way through. 
And I mean, you, from what I can tell, your your first kind of big responsibility in that respect was Supergirl. What's what's that like being given the responsibility to create that that musical soundscape for a show and not having to do what the Star Trek composers were doing, which is yes, doing their own thing, but also trying to match up with what everyone else was doing around them. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, with Supergirl. So I got involved in the Arrowverse because of going back to school, actually USC. Um, there's a specialized program there to, to study uh, scoring for film, television, video games, multimedia. And uh, one of the teachers I had while I was there was Blake Neely. And this was about a few years before Arrow would have come out. So that's how I got to know him. And um, we had a good connection. And he remembered that I was proficient as an orchestrator. So when something came along for him where he wanted an orchestrator, that was our first foray working together. And so we kept doing a few things every now and then. And um, as he started to get all these different shows and the Arrowverse started to expand, he knew he needed to hire additional people. So um, I joined his team as an additional composer. And that's very common in the industry. You'll have people that contribute anywhere from four or five minutes to 10 maybe of score for an episode. And um, it's very common, especially in television when there's just so much and it has to happen so quickly. So um, I was like, this is great. And we, we were shuffling, I think four shows at the time, Arrow, then Flash, and then Supergirl came along and then Legends of Tomorrow. And, and so you, <laughs> in a week, you'd be like, I'll do seven minutes of music on this, seven on this, seven on this. Wait, which one? Oh, we got to go back to that. And, and so it was a little bit stressful, but um, it was a great, great job. Um, and I didn't really have any plans of, of my, I, I just thought, okay, this is employment. I'm working, I'm writing music, working with good people, working in a good environment. And, um, and then just, it just kind of evolved that, uh, you know, he decided that, oh, I should, I should do co-writing situations here. So he promoted all of us that were there to uh, actual credited composers, which is a huge deal. Um, there's a lot of people in the industry that don't do that, that just keep their name only on it and they don't share the credit. And um, so it was really nice to have that uh, opportunity. So on season, season three of Supergirl is when, I, I started to have a credit on the show officially. Uh, and then same with legends of tomorrow. And um, so this is a long answer to your question, but so in, in a way I didn't have to develop anything from the ground up because Blake had already done that with the showrunners. And, but I did kind of have to take, okay, what has he been doing? This is what they want. What, how is the show evolving? Okay. Where do I fit in? Um, so it was kind of a nice, like gradual dip into the pool as opposed to just jumping in. Um, and I got just invaluable experience because I was so sheltered in a way I was so protected. Um, you know, he was kind of bearing the brunt of any of the, of the bad stuff. And then I could, you know, learn, learn some of the tricks, but, uh, yeah, Supergirl was, 
was a challenge. Um, there are so many different characters and you wanted to have music that, you know, evoked their needs and, and their situations. And, um, you always had the villain of the week or villain of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was always almost wall to wall score. So it was, it was a very challenging yeah. job. Also concurrently doing legends of tomorrow, which was a similar situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of ways, legends of tomorrow really, really, really prepared me for quantum leap because I was also a time travel show, varying genres, oftentimes homage to any number of, of different types of films or, or genres. And, uh, so I kind of got all the, uh, <laughs> the stress of things like that out during, you know, that period of time. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of a roundabout way of, of, of coming to that. So, so moving on to, to quantum piece of cake then, how, how did you get the, <laughs> the obviously, not. how did you get the, the role there? Uh, so, um, Blake Neely from the Arrowverse had worked with the new showrunner for Quantum Leap, Martin Garrow. Um, so when Martin was looking to, to have a composer for the show, he, he came to Blake and said, you know, what, what do you think? What, what, what should I do? And that's when Blake said, you know, maybe Daniel's a good fit for this. So, um, I guess my sort of demo or my tryout was actual doing work on the first episode, which, for us was actually the second one that aired. So the space episode, episode two, uh, was essentially what was being treated as like the pilot. Um, and so that's where I was just like, okay, so here we go. And, um, I guess it worked out. (laughs) So I'm only just making the connections here because we've been talking about Star Trek. Um, during episode two, I, I found a lot of the space music so evocative of James Horner's work. Um, no, sorry. Jerry Goldsmith's work. One, I'm thinking of motion picture. That was Goldsmith, wasn't it? Well, I I did, I did feel, uh, like we evoked either or. I mean, there's definitely like a, uh, James Horner moment for me. There were a few actually, but, uh, yeah, definitely picking up on their, their style. Um, because we felt like, yeah, it was, it was in the nineties, I believe. Right. Yes. Yeah. Late nineties. So, so, uh, so yeah. yeah. Okay. So obviously, so that, that went well enough that you, you got the role. And then, um, going back to what you said about not having had to build something from the ground up, suddenly here you are landed with something that you did have to build from the ground up. What kind of prep did you do for that? Um, and did you, did you listen to any of Belton Ray Bunch's music from the original series to create any kind of ties or were you trying to do something completely different? No, actually there wasn't a lot of time. (laughs) There was a very condensed period of go, go, go. So, um, I think the keys to finding like whatever would be the longer lasting sound for the show were, you know, the final moment in the, in the second episode where Ben is leaping and you realize the connection he has with Addison. 
that was one of the key moments. Um, also, like when they talk about their their love earlier on in, in a few scenes. Um, yeah, it was trying to find a balance of we needed, you know, some electronic elements. We needed some synth elements, but as well as fitting into what often dips into like action adventure or um, there's always an element of a little bit of fun. It's not, it's not a hundred percent serious all the time. So we try to like find that and kind of like the, what was nice and sort of gave me a sort of grace period was that each one would have a different sort of setting. So if things weren't working or if I found something that worked better, I could always sort of, gradually change things as it went episode to episode so so yes i was given the task of you know from ground up what is this going to sound like but at the same time i knew a lot of the things would be doled out throughout the season so i could kind of chase that and figure it out also as we went on um i didn't reference the um earlier music from from the first show just because i knew I, I knew techniques are different, approaches different. Um, I wasn't asked to do that, um, so yeah, I didn't want to lean on that. And plus, they all they had live musicians every week. That wasn't going to be in the cards for us. So, um, so yeah, that that was kind of how we started at the beginning. So, is your um is is your music mostly? Synthesize. I know you've had some live musicians involved, but is most of it electronic then? Yeah, yeah, ninety nine percent. I wish there was time and and sufficient budget to do that, but it it can really. Uh, that's probably the main reason why in the in the days of Star Trek, where they leapfrogged episodes and there were multiple composers, just because there's just so much more work involved when you have the live the live recordings. Um, but yeah, no, when we really need it, I definitely bring in people. So the first time would have been on the Western episode. Uh, I brought in people that I enjoy working with here in LA and we had Camille Miller on violin and George Deering on guitar and a few other instruments to, and it always just enhances everything when you have that live element. It's just, yeah. And for me, it really like helps me feel like there's a performance because I'm not 99% of the time I'm here banging on my keyboard. Oh, did you guys hear? No, nobody heard that. Okay. So um, <laughs> it's nice to like, to feed the musician part that, mm-hmm. you know, you're trained and programmed to, to do everything for a performance. And um, whenever you work with live people, it's, it just feel everything feels more complete and it feels just more live and more, more important um but it's always great sure we we've talked about um or we've, we've alluded to all the different genres that you you've got to play with and that's uh that, that pivoting you must have to do week on week can you talk to me about either some of your favorite moments and your favorite places to play or some of the ones where maybe you were less comfortable and some of your bigger challenges the aside from the the space one which was just a hundred percent challenge all the way through just figuring it all out mm-hmm. um the the box the boxing episode episode three came up 
And that I felt a little, a little fish out of water there because we were in the seventies and, you know, I didn't know how, how far I should take the music, you know, how, how, how much should it sound like the seventies? How much should it be more neutral and stay grounded in the season of the show? And we're still so early on. And, um, that one was a challenge. And then when I thought about, okay, I, I really do want to lean into how the Rocky movies feel, um, especially for all of the actual fight and, and the, emo- the emotion of, of the fight, you know, that's, what's great about the Rocky scores is they have not only the, the energy, but there's just this really great feeling you have with all the themes. So I wanted to sort of emulate that. And, um, I, I took the swing and I was like, I don't know how, what is the showrunner going to think about this? And he liked it. So I was like, okay, whew, cause if he wanted something else, I would have had very little time to, to come up, come up with it. So that was the first real big hurdle for me. And then, um, but then I really enjoyed it. I thought our guest guest star on that episode was fantastic. I remember even before I, I work on the episode, I'm watching the cut and there's always temp music from other things, other projects, sometimes from our show. And uh, I remember getting to some of his scenes and just being very, very moved. And that's always a good sign because I know how the sausage is made. And if I'm like reacting before I can even work on it, that's when you know, oh, that's a good performance. Um, so that helped so much. And then I think the way he played off of Raymond really that's when I knew I was like, Oh, this is good. This is a really good cast and this is going to work. Um, I really felt like it captured the spirit of the, sh- the, the whole franchise for me. That was like the first time I, I really felt like, Oh, this is what I remember feeling watching the original quantum leap. I think a lot of us um, were saying the same thing at home as well. And I think the Western, I love, I love Westerns. Um, I was fortunate on Legends of Tomorrow. I think we did like, I don't know, four or five Western flavored episodes. And I just looked forward to those all the time. One, one, one year we had a cowboy narrator and I actually got to co-write the songs with one of the writers from the show. Nice. Um, I, I just, I love Westerns. If they did a whole season of a show, I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd be like, oh, in heaven. Um, so that one I really, really, really enjoyed. Um, I also liked the little, uh, the sort of future, the future plot or whatever you want to call it, the little threads throughout season one about what's, why he's, he's moving towards the future. And that had a kind of evocative music that I, I really enjoyed. Um, of course the, the 12th episode was an important episode with the trans athlete so that one was was important for different reasons. Um, I enjoyed the naval episode fourteen, um, and we had a Legends of Tomorrow alumni in that one, which was great. Um, and the season finale was just was just really great too. Really, really action packed, and I thought yeah. it was solid. Just great episode. So many cool spaces to play in. And you just got me thinking, um, when you were talking about taking episode three, for example, being, being back in the seventies and trying to evoke that, 
what there's there's a lot of um pop and rock music tracks that get used in the show as well at what point does that come along are you working around that or do you compose the music and then that gets decided after and the reason i ask is because i notice a lot of the time that your work will nicely segue in and out of the the pop track so i'm assuming that's already in there I'm glad you you appreciate that because yeah, sometimes we go through great care to make that those transitions work. Um, most of the time, the songs are decided before, so mainly because you know the writer, the director, or the showrunner will have a very specific one they really wanted, and then you have to be sure that the licensing can be achieved for it, which can take time, and so that gets that process gets started before I start. Uh, sometimes there's a last minute switch and they can't use one. And, uh, but I, I'll still adjust, you know, if a score piece comes before or after and, and touches the end of the song or beginning of the song, we'll make it work musically so that you don't get this jarring sense of, Oh, now we're in a song and now we're in the score. Um, but yeah, actually the music, music edit, uh, supervisors, um, they also worked on legends of tomorrow. So, there's a lot of um, Greg Berlanti universe, yeah, that that perpetuates, which which is great because it's always good to work with people that you know, you know, have your back and and yeah. that you can depend on. And yeah, for sure, it, it's um, it's very rare on first viewing that I even notice when your music go goes in and out of the the pop music suddenly there's someone singing in the background and I realize oh actually we're not in score anymore so it's it's that mm. invisible I, I I loved and I I need to ask you about this because I, I loved probably my favorite piece of your music from uh, the first season was the tail end of episode three which does coincidentally come out of some pop music um, the name escapes mm. me at the moment but it's a it's an LA band I think that um, does the piece when Addison, everyone's at Addison's flats and everything looks okay. And then magic gets the call and it all goes very dark and it moves into your piece. And you, you have that shade of the original quantum leap theme. absolutely chilling and what a great way to use the theme <laughs> was it your idea to, to use a bit of the theme in there we no, no that was that was from the showrunners uh they really wanted to do that especially because you saw the old hand link so they really wanted that connection um i was the, the tricky part for me was because the original theme it needs time for you to hear it it, it, it can't be compressed into a quick two seconds thing, although we got close, I think. Um, so that was kind of frustrating for me because I really, I want, I wanted it to like have more, I wish the shot had been a little bit longer. Um, <laughs> but I thought it was a really fun, fun thing to do. And I, I think, I think that was a good place to do it. Like you say, um, I know a lot of people wish that there was a similar kind of theme song. I just, I just don't know if that would work for the style of the show because a lot of shows now just don't have your minute yeah. plus long themes. Um, 
anymore, which it, it it's good and bad, you know? Um, so it was nice to, to fit that in there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a different world now. And it's, I find it interesting that, yeah, we still see people saying, I want Scott Bakula back. I want the Saga Cell back. And I want a proper theme tune. And I think, well, we've lost about five minutes since the, the early nineties per TV hour. How are we going to get a theme tune back, whether you want it or not? Um, you've got that, that few seconds with the logo coming up, which, which works to, to set the tone for the show. But it is, we are in a very different world these days. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've shared with you my favorite moment from the first season and you've talked about all your, your highlights from the first season. I know we've got to be a bit careful because this is going out alongside episode three. We've still got at least five more episodes, hopefully several more than that to come. But what can you tell me about the work you've done in, in season two and some of your highlights? We do already know the, the loose plot lines of, or at least the, the styles of all the first eight episodes. So if you want to say the episode said in Egypt, that's not going to surprise anyone, but what, what are, what are some of your, your favorite moments from the well, second season? The, that episode surprised me when I saw it. I was like, what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, uh, that was, that was one of my favorites from season two, actually. Um, this season has been great. I mean, I loved the first season, but, uh, there's just something, there's this like momentum that I think this season has. Um, the situation Ben has put in, um, I think is, really interesting you know the, the the gap um how he's dealing with addison how she's dealing with it there's just there's good drama there um there's the new characters of course every episode but there'll be someone that you know might appear in a few episodes that's that i when i first thought about it i was like how is this going to work and um really cool the way they the way they've threaded that through the season and no there was just so many fun moments um yeah the the sort of close encounters episode um was so fun to do uh it's just always great to play in that sort of like uh tone clusters and and you know fun atonal violins and uh jump scare type things and Oh, it was just so fun. I remember the first pass through, um, I was actually told to like, no, no, amp this up, make it more, make it bigger, make it, you know, more like those kinds of movies. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so yeah, this season so far has been fantastic. Great. And hopefully, uh, like, like we were talking about at the start, hopefully you'll be, um, back to work soon working on some more at what point would you expect to start getting hold of scripts to start thinking about what's coming up i'm not going to try and get anything out of you if you already know what's coming up but uh do you do you get an, an early warning maybe over the next few weeks do you think the writers will start sharing some ideas with you i think usually i only get roped into information um if there's going to be something particular in the music that I should watch out for or prepare for, mm -hmm. um, or if they, if they might know, Oh, he might want to record something, you know, they might tell me by the way, this is coming up. Mm -hmm. 
but uh no i think so far i i can wait for for the work to be done and then jump in um well you you can wait uh we can't we're we're super excited and um I'm so glad that as this goes out, we've got another five episodes uh, to look forward to and find out what's going on in Egypt and listen to to more of the different genres that you're pulling from. So, Daniel, it's been so great chatting with you and uh, hearing more about your process. I feel like I've learned a bunch and uh, it's been really great reminiscing about some of the stuff from season one and looking forward to what's coming up for season two. Daniel, thanks so much for your time. No, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about the work um, because, like I said, you know, I spend most of my hours isolated and and um, you just don't know how something's going to play out or how people are going to react. Or So it's it's nice once things aren't in a vacuum anymore and and to realize people are paying attention and um, and valuing the work is is just so gratifying. So uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was such a fun interview to run. And what you don't know, because this all happened uh, before I hit record, those of our listeners that also watch these videos on, on YouTube might have noticed that right behind me are a whole bunch of uh, Star Trek starships and uh, starship plaques from the discontinued Eagle Moss collection uh, that's been running for the last few years. And we, we've we run uh, 50, 60 interviews over the last year with that. That is my background. He is the first person that's come straight onto a recording and said, hey, Matt, good to meet you. Are those Eagle Moss plaques behind you? He didn't even just say, are they Starship plaques? He recognised the range. <laughs> and we spent about 15 minutes just talking about our, our collector mentality before we even started recording. He's a big old Star Trek nerd, which was great. I was quite nervous talking to a composer because I don't know the first thing about music, but he absolutely put me at my ease by just turning out that he's he's a big old TNG fan. So I was very happy about that. Oh, that's awesome. It was a fun interview too. But you've all heard that. I just wanted to share the stuff that happened before. <laughs> Who has the better uh, Starship collection, you or, or him? You know, it turns out we have almost exactly the same Starship collection because there's various different sub-ranges and we each made the same choices at roughly the same time as to whether to stay or go on different ranges. It was weird. As he was saying stuff, I was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. I, wow. I, I promise I'm not just sucking up, but just me too. <laughs> That's funny. Now, that was a trick question, though. I have the best Starship collection because I have both the NX-01 XL Edition and the Defiant. Beat that. I have both of those. So no way you're beating me. You've probably thrown away more Eagle Moss Starships than I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, that is where, that's where Daniel and I differ. He has uh, more space than I do, so he has the XL Editions. I do not have any of the XL Editions, but uh, yeah. Oh, and I lie. I have the Big E, too. I have the XL of uh, the original oh, Enterprise. Nice. Um, but yeah, we also talked about music for half an hour. We talked about music for <laughs> half an hour. And, um, and I, yeah, I, I think it was, it was really fun. And he was, uh, yeah, he seemed genuinely, I mean, you heard it in the interview, but also he said a couple of times afterwards, uh, he seemed genuinely just quite flattered that people outside his, the, the four walls that he works in were showing an interest. Because he's obviously, it's quite an isolated job just sitting there by yourself tinkling away scoring things yeah yeah exactly so a lot of fun a lot of fun really nice guy
Yeah, thank you so much, Daniel, for being on the Quantum Leap Podcast and for being so generous with your time. Uh, another interview for the archives, for the historians, for Matt's book. Let's just be honest. So, <laughs> so yeah. So, Heck yes. Yeah, so that's not the only positive thing we have to relay to all of you listeners out there. Matt, we also have a new patron. Woo! <gasps> Yes. Let's give it up for a name that might sound familiar. Uh, His name is Philip Marson. He joins us at the $2 Observer level, which means he gets a shout out on the main podcast. Hi, here's your shout out, Phil. And uh, he also gets access to our exclusive discussion threads about the episodes and the polls that I put up and any other sort of general uh, posting that I make over there on the Patreon site. Philip is also uh, someone that responded to us with a nice long email. At one point last year for uh, season one of the reboot. So I knew his name sounded familiar. And then I went back and and I saw his email and I was just like, okay, so Phil has been with us since I guess the beginning of the new series, at least. And he has decided to kick in $2 a month to become an observer. We appreciate it more than you know, Philip. It's people like you that help us keep the lights on. So thank you so much for your support. Thank you. And speaking of feedback, we have a couple of things this time. We have feedback? Yeah, we cool. have some. We have some. Um, I'm going to start because uh, we heard from our producer, Cosplay Dad, uh, who's been with us forever, like since Albie and Heather have been hosting the podcast. And he chimed in on that official Patreon discussion thread that I mentioned for Ben and Teller. And Cosplay Dad writes, I really hope. This doesn't become Quantum CW. Like all the hero shows, you have your main protagonist doing all the action and, quote, the team creating additional drama. Classic QL had team drama, Tina's having an affair with Gushy, as gags and dabs of color. They didn't build a season out of it. Honestly, I prefer the anthology model with the slow burn of getting to know the recurring characters over time. Hmm. I have thoughts. What are your thoughts? I, I kind of see what he's saying, but I also think I can't think of any shows other than classic Quantum Leap that created recurring characters entirely off screen for quite some time. You had Gushy saying a few lines in the pilot, but other than that, Gushy, Tina, Verbena, we didn't see them for several years. That was all built up through the writing and through Dean Stockwell's performance. I'll, I'll do you two better. Go on. Well, we never saw Vera on Cheers, and we never saw Maris on Frasier. Okay. So, I don't know if that means anything to you. Okay. Fair. <laughs> it, yes, but those those are individual characters, whereas this, until we got to season five and the waiting room was there every other episode, the first few seasons of classic Quantum Leap, there was basically this whole world. You know, there was... Al's annoying neighbour making noises with his car. There was all this kind of stuff that was all just done through Dean telling us about it, which I don't I don't know if that's easy to replicate. Not not just a character, but really a whole world. That's true. And I also think that you need someone of Dean's caliber to pull something like that off. No shade on any of the people uh that we're watching now, but I don't there's just something about Al. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he's not entirely reliable because Allison still to this day calls him a big fat liar about everything he says. So she doesn't believe him. I don't know if she's doing that as a gag or what, but she's brought that up several times. So. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I, I get it. And it, it would be nice. But also, I, I think it was a, a one time thing. I, I can't imagine any future reboot of Quantum Leap ever trying that again. And it, it would be, su- I'd be surprised if it was successful. 
I would too. I would too. But I, I would also uh, like to join in Tom's trepidation over that CW, uh, that flavor, because it's the mm-hmm. the entire reason I had to stop watching like The Flash and <laughs> and Arrow, and it because it just got to be just this boring, crushing melodrama. Always back with the team, and you maybe got to see Run Barry Run for about three minutes an episode after a while, and so it's like, yeah, we don't want to go too far the other in the other direction too. Let's let the pendulum swing just right both ways. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, it seems to me like they're doing a better job this season, uh, or they're they're poised to, based on what we've seen in this episode, anyway. So, yeah. Thank you, Cosplay Dad, for that yeah, thoughtful thanks. reply. Um, Matt, why don't you take this next one? Yeah, sure. So our listener Steve Greaves Law sent us an email with the subject line: "Ben is single." Good observation. Sam was forever falling in love with women on his leaps. I wonder if now Ben is single, the show will play into that. There's the murky water of consent to wade through. Yeah, we've, we've, we've <laughs> yeah. spoken about that on the show. Many, many uh, there's times. The murky water, yes, there's the murky water of consent to wade through, but it could be interesting to see how Ben handles developing feelings for the people he's helping and how Addison would react to that. Oh, and another point. The way Ben kicked down the wall when he's supposed to be in the body of an elderly lady. Have they gone back on the mind leap? Steve. <laughs> Yeah, so two things there to unpack, right? Yeah. Thank you, Steve. First of all, yeah, it hadn't really occurred to me until I read the feedback that we could be going into different, I don't know, dalliances or different different challenges that Ben might face with the new sensibilities that we have that we didn't have when the original Quantum Leap was on, vis-a-vis that consent. I can't imagine them doing that in this new show without some kind of nod to he's not who he says he is, yet he seems to be to that person, and it's thorny. It's very thorny. This is why I think they've introduced the Hannah character, because we know from the trailer he's going to, uh, the season-wide trailer, that he's going to tell her who he is and that he's a time traveler. The fact that she's going to be a recurring character suggests that, even, even before we knew about that, um, suggested that she'd be in on it somehow. So there's going to be a level of honesty there, as opposed to Sam's usual, hey, some lady's throwing herself at me. You're all right. Yeah. <laughs> How do we play it this week? It depends on who's writing it. If Tommy's writing it, he wants nothing to do with it. <laughs> I, I suspect Hannah was one part, oh, this will be an interesting storyline, and another part, this is the only way we can get away with this kind of storyline these days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that you're 100% there. That's exactly where my mind went as well. And I think it'll be interesting to see if we can get Raymond with another person besides Addison, uh, if that's indeed where this is going, and see what the chemistry is like with that. Will we like it better? Will we like it worse? I'm still just very confused about the logistics of all of this, but uh, you did mention Time Traveler's Wife. So, <laughs> yes. I, yeah, I, I'm guessing that that's probably the way that they're going to go. And I think that Steve is very astute for picking up on that possibility and all of it playing into what they might be setting up for Hannah this season. Have they gone back on the mind leap? I am still unsure because Ben. His body is not there at the project, and there's no visitor, so he's there in both mind and body along with the Leap B, and they're somehow coexisting in the same space, and oh, look, I've gone cross-eyed. Yeah, it's, I have a headache. Do you remember what this, you just wrote the book. You just wrote the book. So how did they explain it in the the pilot? 
I've I've kind of been waiting for this to happen because in the pilot, they or in the in the first episode certainly rather than the the original unaired pilot in the first episode as aired they did they, they kind of talked about quantum entanglement but never really got into what that meant exactly. And there was interviews around the time where the showrunners were saying, yeah, quantum entanglements are basically kind of in the same place at the same time, which opened them up to saying, well, we can have Ben's strength and attributes, or we can have the Leapy's strength and attributes, depending on what the plot calls for at the time. And I have been waiting for them to actually make use of that. So far, every time it's been one or the other, it's always been... Uh, the Lee P. Um, the boxer was very strong. Uh, the um, the guy in one hundred and six uh, was got tired out because he was a bit out of shape. They've never made use of Ben, but he, he, even so, they left that door open right the way from the start. So I have no issue with that. I'm just surprised it took them that long. But it is definitely a because plot thing. Yeah, but it's a because plot thing that they did signpost very early on. And I haven't thought about it since. Mm-hmm. It honestly yeah. has no bearing on enjoying the show for me at all. And the only reason I bring it up, uh, uh, quite honestly, the only reason I bring it up when we talk about the classic series is to just get a rise out of Allison. So, I mean, I don't care if it's mind. I don't care if it's body. I happen to like the idea that it's both on both shows, as I'm on record or saying. So, <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. I think the old show is pretty consistent, but it, but the new show did give itself a way of being inconsistent and then just went ahead and was consistent. So I, I've seen a, a couple of comments online to that effect as well. That Oh, where's this come from? Have they changed their mind? Well, no, they're just making use of a plot device that has been there for 20 episodes now. They gave themselves some wiggle room and now they're deciding to use it. Yeah. So creative license, everybody. That's what it's called. Yeah. Uh, and we give you a creative license to contact us here on the Quantum Leap Podcast. If you want to be like Cosplay Dad or listener Steve Greaves Law, there are many ways that you can reach us here at the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can send us a letter, an old timey letter at P.O. Box. 542 Bayport, New York, 11705. You can get us on the phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can Instagram us at quantumleappodcast or X us at quantumleappod. You can see us on YouTube at youtube.com slash thequantumleappodcast. And you can always go that extra mile and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash quantumleap podcast. Just remember that we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And speaking of upcoming episodes, Matt, tell us what's next. I am going to do the unprecedented so far in this podcast uh, thing of giving a spoiler warning here, because um, this is the first time since the original series we've had a leap out that isn't quite what it appears to be. We hit him tonight. Remember, two guards at the rear. One in the head, one in the chest. When we get inside, you grab the statue, and I will light up that place to make sure there are no survivors. Understood. So if you enjoyed the leap out at the end of this episode and don't want to be surprised about what it actually means, stop now. But here goes, Lonely Hearts Club. Ben leaps into the body of an ambitious Hollywood assistant whose famous client, Neil Russell, is in danger. As Ben realises that Neil's circumstances may shed light on his own, 
his working relationship with Addison reaches an inflection point. Inflection point. Now that fancy that, college a, education right there. <laughs> I've, I've never heard that word used in that way. I'm, that's, I learned something new today. Thanks, NBC Marketing. I'm just preoccupied that the leap in is basically two close-ups, one of Ben and one of, uh, I guess it's Neil, because it is the main guest star, Tim Matheson, who yes. I can't help but anytime I see the guy, I think of Otter from Animal House. I didn't realize it was him. I've not seen that film in years. Hi, Eric Stratton, Russ Sherman. Damn glad to meet you. <laughs> Damn glad to meet you. Yes. I've, I've got to go back and watch that now. Uh, he appeared in Animal House with Bruce McGill who is, of course, many people think is GTF dubs. So lots of connective tissue going on here, at least in my head. So yeah, I can't wait to see this one. Uh, Yeah, Otter, Otter. Mm. Hmm. Uh, Well, I hope it's good. I've always enjoyed Tim Madison, and uh, I was happy to see his face pop up. So uh, I can't wait to see what they do with him. And uh, I can't wait to see Ben as a Hollywood assistant. I guess it's going to be an LA leap. They can get away with going outside and not worrying about the trees everywhere, digitally removing them. (laughs) Maybe they will just for shits and giggles. We will find (laughs) out next time on the Quantum Leap Podcast. Until then, I have been Christopher DeFilippis. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you in LA, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. The executive producer of the quantum leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Special thanks to our producers, Harold Sullivan, Glenda Palma, Chris, a.k.a. Brackmang, Mike Covert, Jeff Kiska, Craig Riedler, Cosplay Dad, Charles Allen Gossard, and Morgan Felden. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a barren space production. Oh, yeah, of course. It's just, you know, the second I get on mic, I start to get hiccupy. Aww. Poor me. It's probably some kind of lingering stage fright, like subconscious. As if you need to suffer from stage fright. Happens to the best of us. You're the pro here. I tell you, when I was um, doing my Deflipside segments, I would do them at the radio station with the host standing in the room, and like every sentence needed a second take. I after years of this, like it was like staying up all night doing these things just for a five minute segment. I said, "Just step out of the room." He stepped out of the room. I did it in one take. Yes, of course. <laughs> you know, of course. And uh, I said, "Come back in. We're going to do it this way from now on." And then shortly thereafter, I got my own mic, so I was just able to do it from home. Yeah. You know, so it's just me in a room. But uh, long story short, when I'm in front of people, I still get nervous. So mm. I don't know why. It's weird. It's just weird. Yeah, I think that's normal. So that's the in deep into the psyche of Chris. Ooh. Thank you. I feel like I should have captured that for one of my books. I don't know. It's, a, it's yeah. an important <laughs> bit of important bit of quantum leap lore. Exactly. New, newsflash. Uh, we're <laughs> going to have the third edition just to put the line, Chris is insecure. <laughs>
there was so much going on with that character. It must have been a, an actor's dream being given... A, I'm sorry. <coughs> <coughs> Apparently, I had a penis about five hours ago, and um, I just okay. came back. <coughs> are you going to... Are you going to die? No. <laughs> okay. No, I'm not allergic. I just I, I, I just suddenly felt... It's still there. I suddenly can feel something in my throat. <coughs> All right. Sorry. Life's rough. Leap it off, kid.